Welcome to Talent Hub Talk. I'm Ben Duncan, and on this podcast, I will be interviewing prominent and inspirational figures from both the local ANZ and global Salesforce Ohana. In today's episode, I'm joined by Doug Merritt, who is the founder of Platinum 7, the Salesforce security, compliance, and resilience specialist. Through this episode, we hear more about Doug's early career, how he found his way into the Salesforce ecosystem, and what it was like working for Salesforce, where he spent more than 13 years. Doug shares some insight on the changes we've seen in the security space over the years, some of the biggest challenges companies are facing with security right now, and we also discuss who needs to be driving the security discussions within businesses of different sizes. Doug also talks us through how he has found starting a business and the value that he hopes to provide to different companies around Salesforce security, compliance, and resilience. I really hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, please do subscribe for future episodes that are coming through. Well, Doug, thanks so much for joining us. I'm excited to delve into the world of security with you today. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Really appreciate your time. Looking forward no, to it. Definitely. And it's a hot topic at the moment. So yeah, really keen to hear more about your area of specialism and also the new business. But I always like to kind of look backwards and find out a bit more about you from before you got into this world and, and the world of Salesforce. So can you tell me a little bit about who you are before Salesforce, who you were, and your career before the world of working in the Salesforce ecosystem? Yeah, definitely, Ben. So I did my degree at University of Technology, Queensland. So it used to be called Queensland Institute of Technology. Now it's called Queensland University of Technology. Yeah. A long time ago, sort of dates me a little bit. And from there, I went straight into consulting to finish off a project I started at university, which is great. And then moved on from there to working for a company called Lattice Software, which did HR and payroll using a product called Progress. People might remember Progress. It's still around today. Very good 4GL database tool. And I started working on that, loved it. And I said, look, I've got to get a job with this. And I moved to the US and actually built some software for the back end of slot machines. So behind me, you might be able to see for people watching the video afterwards, I've got actually some of the glass from some of the slot machines I've helped build software for in the US, which is fantastic. And then I decided to actually work for Progress. So I became a sluice engineer, so a pre-sales person to Progress, worked for them in Australia and the UK, moved to the UK about 26 years ago. Worked in UK with Progress and then flipped across to Salesforce. Progress is sort of like Salesforce. Everything just really just works. It, it's just a great technology to use. Being on-premise, though, I thought I'd need to do something a bit different. So I flipped into Salesforce and I worked for them in the UK for nearly eight years and then moved back home and I've been working at Salesforce for nearly six years back here. So, yeah, nearly 13 years in total at Salesforce before starting yeah, wow. my business. Wow. So uh, just on the topic of those gaming machines behind you, that must have been a pretty interesting world to get into. So were you studying software engineering in university and, and always kind of wanted to go down that path? Or did you kind of fall into software engineering? I actually started doing electronics as a kid, as a hobby. So I was soldering and building stuff. And then a thing came out called a computer. And so I thought, that's pretty cool. I built one of those. So that was back in the days where it was etch your own circuit boards and actually have the CPU and all the sort of hexadecimal keypad and stuff. So I became a programmer just out of my electronics hobby. Went to university to computer science because I wanted to be do computer science. And then I've always been a computer programmer ever since day dot, basically. I still program today, even though I'm not a full-time developer. I, I still get my hand in, build stuff with Raspberry Pi. I did some demos for Salesforce at a couple of world tours, which involved building a little robot that integrated with Salesforce on an iPad, which is pretty cool, using Salesforce all the way in between. So you buy stuff on yeah. your iPad. You buy products on your iPad, and it picks and packs them for you using a little robot. No way. 
Yeah, it's pretty cool. And when you were building the software behind these machines, was it, I guess, the algorithms behind how you ultimately you get winners and losers of the spin of those reels? Or I definitely work on that part of the software because that actually is all government controlled because it's really, really mandated. It's like health software. It has to be mm-hmm. really well audited because it has to be true. And it is purely random. There is no way that a slot machine can be faked. You can't guess what the next one's going to be. It's impossible. It is purely random. And so don't bother, right? Don't you knew what it. I was going to ask. Yeah, exactly. No, you, can't, <laughs> you, you, can't, you can't fudge it. I did the work behind the scenes, actually taking the number of coins in, the number of coins out, number of pulls. So work out the payback on the machines, a lot of back-end software. But we also did things called a progressive, where you had a bunch of machines chipping into one pot. You may have seen them if you've been to casinos, you have like four or five machines that will clump and have one price pool at the top. And yeah. whenever someone puts some coin in the front, it goes up a little bit. So our software that we did in the US actually did statewide progressive. So a couple of machines at each casino added up together to actually become one porous pot, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, nice. And where, where in the US were you? In Reno, Nevada. Okay, so yeah, nice. The biggest Makes little sense. city in the world, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then in the UK? In the UK, I lived in Maidenhead near London and yep, uh, no. worked with Salesforce. We started off in, in Frimley and then we moved into Staines. You may know that from the Staines Massive from Ali G. And then, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then into the city in Salesforce Tower. Yeah, my, uh, my wife's from Reading, so I know that area fairly well. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So obviously, you mentioned you then decided you wanted something a bit different from um, on-premise, and uh, and here was Salesforce. So this is going back like thirteen years ago. Yep. So at, at that point, like, what was Salesforce? Like, how attractive was the proposition of getting into the Salesforce world? It was very, very attractive. They just launched App Exchange, and the platform became a product. And that's one of the reasons that really excited me to join Salesforce. I mean, it was only two and a half thousand people when I joined which is a little bit smaller than it is today at 55,000. And the technology just worked, like I said, it was easy. It's part of my interview process, they wanted me to build an app. So I built a library lending book app, which still exists today. It still works as per usual because Salesforce updates just don't break anything. So it hasn't got any of the new lightning features, but it still works in classic perfectly until they turn classic off. And I have to do some little yeah, well, poker uh, maybe to make it into, into lightning possibly, but it still works today. Sure. So obviously you, you say it was an attractive proposition, but did it feel like obviously a, a much smaller business back then? So did it feel like a kind of startup at that point? Or because they were probably what, seven or eight years in? Yeah, about seven, eight, yeah, about eight years in. And it felt like a startup. It was growing quickly. You got to know all the amazing people who worked there. An amazing bunch of SEs I worked with in the UK when we first kicked off. And meeting all the SEs from around the world, we had you know, SE kickoffs, which all the SEs went to, which is pretty amazing. You couldn't do that today because you'd take over half a, half a stadium. But yeah, it was a great place to be. It was just a really big buzz. And this internet thing was catching on. And that was part of the fun, though, because it was explaining to people what the internet was and how cloud computing actually could help them. And that was part of the people were a little bit strange to this new concept. So that was always a fun part. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine. Yeah, I bet you've got some stories. We won't go into them now. But yeah, so so your specialism and, and, and what you're known as and for now is, is being a, a kind of security guru in the Salesforce world and being your go-to security person. But has that always been the case? Like, Was that your first step into the world of Salesforce in the security realms? Or, or did you do something else back then? When I first joined, it was mainly as a platform specialist SE. And the platform specialist SEs also did security like they do today. So when I joined, I started off as a programmer, but security was always part of my interest anyway. I've got a couple of books on Java security pie me in my bookshelf. But the, the security stuff has always been intriguing to me. So I started learning from some of my colleagues who were CISSPs. 
And so they taught me a lot more about the security realm and I became more and more interested and actually took that on and that was became part of my specialty. And then it's grown and grown from that. And when I came back to Australia, I was blessed to actually take over the team. So I was part of a, a great platform SE security team. And then I took over that team as a manager and we had platform security doing a great job together and, and just making customers understand how we do what we do and went from there. Sure. Form building can be a tedious and complex process when collecting loads of data for enterprises. Solve this issue with ease through Form Assembly, an all-in-one secure web form builder with a robust Salesforce integration. This seamless web-to-lead form building connection boasts features including sophisticated data collection, the option to pre-fill forms, create and update records, and more. Their advanced compliance standards offer prime solutions for companies in the government, FinServe, healthcare, non-profit, and higher education spaces. Visit www.formassembly.com forward slash talent hub to find out why FormAssembly is the number one enterprise form building platform for Salesforce and how it can be customized to fit the needs of your company. So security now is massively a hot topic, right? You, you, you're hearing about cyber attacks and, and the importance of security. But when, when you got into the world of Salesforce, was it like an interesting and hot topic? Were, were people that aware of the security requirements then? And how have you seen the, I guess, the challenges evolve of security over the years? Yeah, great question. And the key thing I had when I first started off 13 years ago was more around this cloud thing. I mean, you, you mean I'm putting my data in your cloud. How do I trust you? And, and that was the majority of the conversation. It wasn't about security hacks as such, but when you're talking to, to big banking institutions or government organizations, they're very used to having their own hardware, their own people running the hardware, and they could trust them because they own them. Whereas if you have to hand your data over to somebody else, how do you trust them? And that's always the interesting part, and that's why Salesforce's number one value always has been and always will be trust. Mm-hmm. And so the conversations moved from, was living in the cloud, how do I trust you? To we sort of trust cloud now. It's still something you've got to do some due diligence against, but then it's more around how do I protect my data more appropriately? And so Salesforce over time bought out more and more products to look at that. So things like the Shield suite of products, Privacy Center, Security Center, and products like that as well. So all those products were bought out to actually increase the security of Salesforce as extra options. But the actual core features of Salesforce have been enhanced over time as well. As you know, in the the release notes, they talk a lot about all the new features coming up, and a lot of them are security-related every particular release. So they're turning off older versions of the API now after many, many, many years of supporting them, just mainly to make it a lot easier for our developers to keep, when I say our, I just left Salesforce two weeks ago, so I'm still saying our, (laughs) I'm saying there, my apologies. But Salesforce still has... Uh, a lot of developers working on keeping older stuff still working. So you want to try and avoid that attack vector. So if you minimize your attack vectors, it makes it a lot better. So customers now are more focusing around how do you keep your data safe versus do I trust you for looking after my data? One thing that I've always been interested in, and my wife works in software sales, and and she gets this question a lot around uh, where's the data stored and, and the requirement of data being locally, right, being stored locally. Um, how much of an impact did that make when the data centers started coming to Australia or to the region in terms of the ability to then to get bigger customers and to, to build more trust because that data was here? Well, it's always quite interesting, actually. Back in the day, there was something called the IRAP certification, which was the government certifications for 
holding citizen data and other things inside of a cloud platform. That certification is now gone, but government departments still have to do their own uh, assessments. And so Salesforce still produces the IRAP certification documentation that customers look at. Now, Salesforce was the only non-Australian data center certified to IRAP specifications. It was a Japanese data center. So residency of data doesn't actually necessarily give you any benefit when it comes to security at all, because the laws of the country you sign the contract in really the ones that work for you. And so it doesn't really alter your security per se to have your data in Australia or not. Yes, you may have agreements with your customers saying, I will keep your data in Australia, but that's, I think, more of a warm and fuzzy feeling. There are some things that have to be kept in Australia, obviously, things around health information and and things like that. But the majority of data does not have to be in Australia. Banking institutions with APRA, yes, if you have offshore hosting, then you need to do a little bit more due diligence. But the reason that the Salesforce data center in Australia was so successful was actually because it made performance a little bit better because of latency, but it gave people a much more warm and fuzzy feeling that, yes, the data is in Australia. It's, it's I think, more of a warm and fuzzy versus an actual requirement, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I, I kind of get that feeling as well. I think it's one of those just tick boxes, isn't it? And on, on a lot of these RFPs, it's like, well, where is the, the data stored? And, you know, it, it's uh, nice to have and, and it gives a level of confidence, even if people don't understand that there isn't actually a huge benefit either way. Well, the only real benefit technically is actually performance because the network's a lot shorter to get from A to B, right? And the laws of the land, you should be more worried about what the company is doing to keep your data safe versus where it actually is. Absolutely. Because where it actually is doesn't affect the security because the internet's connected to everything. And so the hackers can get anywhere. It doesn't actually, there's no fence around outside of Australia saying thou shalt not hack. It doesn't (laughs) work that way, right? So it makes it a bit tricky to do that sort of stuff. But it's interesting to see that people are now becoming a little bit more flexible about that. But understanding where your data lives actually is very important because it's not only around the security of it, it's actually more around the resilience of it. Because if you have one data center and it goes pop, well, then you're in trouble, right? So Mm -hmm. having two is mandatory and having three is even better. Sure. So talking of risks to companies, and and obviously that is one of them, but what are some of the biggest risks that that companies really need to be aware of? We'll talk about Salesforce and the the data and the security around Salesforce, but I guess this is going to be the same for any any platform or service that they're using. But but yeah, what, what are you seeing right now as the risks that companies need to be aware of? Well, a lot of the time, customers um, doing a lot of due diligence around the vendor's security capacity. So when I was at Salesforce, answering a lot of questions around how Salesforce does what it does is mandatory, right? And that, that's fine. Fully understand because you need to trust the vendor because if you don't trust the vendor, you're crazy, right? You've got to trust them to look after your data securely and make sure it's safe. The, the key trick is what people do forget is the biggest threat to customers' data is actually the customer's employees because they have access to it to do their job. And so therefore, they have great access to the customer's data. And if they get either malware attacked and unintentionally have a hacker come through their environment and take the data, or if they're intentionally doing something like they're um, a salesperson who wants to head off to the competition and take the customers with them, there you go, right? They can run a report, stick it on a USB stick and walk out the door. And that's the biggest threat because most customers don't really think about their data as being an asset. But in reality, it is. If you think about what most businesses are, it's intellectual property and their customer list, which is the key part of their business. If they lose it, they're in trouble. And a lot of people don't focus a lot on their internal employees. So in my personal view, the biggest risk. Yeah, it's interesting because like when you when you think about security, you think about like two-factor authentication and, and who can log into the org. 
but you forget about actually, well, what measures do we have in place to make sure that the people that can log into the org are doing the right thing? So what are some of those kind of really basic, simple steps that people should be addressing to, to make sure that, you know, they're not putting their, their data at risk? Yeah, brilliant question, Ben. And I think that the, the most important part that people should be looking at is to minimize the number of admins you actually have down to maybe two. And those admins should not be regular users. They should be not used until they have to be used as an admin, right? So that user should never be logged in at all unless you have to do it to do an upgrade or, or move things into production or add a new user or whatever it has to be done. That admin user should not be used as a normal user. So all of the users should be other profiles besides administrator. And obviously, multi-factor authentication is key. It's, it's Salesforce are going to enforce that next year. So I'd strongly suggest people to get on the multi-factor authentication process. The Salesforce Authenticator is a wonderful tool. I use it myself for all my products. So my Qantas, my Amazon, my Microsoft, my Salesforce are all using my Salesforce Authenticator because the good thing about that is it backs up to Salesforce's cloud. And if you lose your phone, you can restore all your multi-factor onto a new phone. And that's a major benefit because if you ever lose your multi-factor for Amazon, trying to get back into that, it's it's really hard. Yeah. So, Multi-factor is a good one to look at, minimizing number of admins, but also just checking who's got access to see what data and who's got access to do certain things. A lot of people have too open a setup inside their version of Salesforce because you should be looking at your data and saying, well, who actually should see this? And to do that, you've really got to classify it. So Salesforce allows you to classify data and you should be doing that today. And then from that, you can determine who should be seeing it and then minimize access to users to do just the least privileged approach to data access. Mm -hmm. And there was one, um, when, when we spoke uh, recently, you were talking around tracking of what's being done. And that can be like, an example is uh, like, uh, not just updating a field, but can, can you track what's being viewed within Salesforce? And I think that's always like as a salesperson, when I, I think of myself using Salesforce and being able to see what's being done in there on, on the records I own, if someone isn't editing a record, can, can you see that they've observed and looked at a, a record and, and things like that? With the out-of-the-box capability Salesforce provides, no, you can't. However, they released a product called Event Monitoring, which in my opinion is mandatory for everybody because what it allows you to do is exactly that. You can see exactly who has seen which data and when they run a report, you can actually see exactly which records have come out of that report. Have they exported those records, et cetera, et cetera. You can see exactly what's going on, who's doing what. And that's not only your internal staff, it's also your experience cloud users as well, either the partner or the customer experience cloud. Okay. Yeah, because I, I have a question about experience cloud as well, because I think that's murky waters, right, when there are external objects or external data, I guess, access points. So we'll, we'll get onto that shortly. But... This question, I guess, I'm I'm not thinking of like a huge bank when I ask this question because I think they have a security team and they're they're well aware of you know the requirements around security and and they have there's legislation and regulation all these things. But if we look at a smaller business, who should be driving this discussion? Because I think if you look at a company like maybe 100 to 500 people, they're going to have an IT director. They might have a security team, they might not, but quite often it would be seen that, well, surely the Salesforce administrator is taking care of this because this is their role, right? They know they know Salesforce, they've done their security specialist badge on Trailhead. They should be looking after our org. But is that is the Salesforce team the right people to be thinking about this or should someone else be thinking about, yeah, the risks that are involved and the, the things they need to be doing to make sure that they're protected? Well, the Salesforce admin team generally are 
the folks who are very, very busy looking after making sure that their version of Salesforce works for them. They're not necessarily security experts. Yes, I've done the security trailhead badge, and I thoroughly recommend everyone should do that. I've got my SE to um, super badge. It's a really good super badge to go through. One of the things I do suggest, though, is the risk team. If you don't have a risk team, obviously, your IT director would probably be the stand-in for that. And also the financial people as well, because obviously risk is a financial challenge as well as a technical challenge. So CFO, CTO, those sort of people should be the ones thinking, well, what are the risks to the business and how are we going to mitigate those risks, how are we going to control them? And that's probably where that should be coming from for the whole business, because it's not just the IT systems, it's also the physical business. I've had customers who got so funny about having data living in the cloud, and yet their server was left logged in, turned on with an unlocked door. So you, anybody could just wander off the street through the front desk into the computer room and steal it. And so it's like, okay, you're worried about us, but really, you don't lock your door? So that's always an interesting concept as well. So it's really more around the whole security of the company and the risk to the company. And that's where it should be coming from the, the C-level suite really downwards. Mark Benioff at Salesforce is a serious driver around the security of Salesforce. And I believe every CEO should have that in key because when you look at nowadays, there's a lot of legislation out there for data breaches, and that can knock your business to six. And if you have a data breach, well, whose fault is that? Is it the Salesforce admin? Possibly, but they're not necessarily the ones that are best placed to understand the risks and, and what they should be doing to mitigate. They, they're the ones that would do the work to do this sometimes, but sometimes in then they don't know how it works. Is who sets up event monitoring? Who, who watches it? What other tools should you use on top of that? So I mean, event monitoring is a very powerful tool, but are you also using some other features like the transaction security part of that? Are you using Improvata's fair warning product to actually give you amazing alerts behind all those tools to actually let you know when things are going wrong? Mm -hmm. So I believe the admin people have a very strong part to play in this, but actually the guidance should be coming from the C-suite. It's interesting because I think a lot of the time when it comes to Salesforce capabilities, like the C-suite wouldn't necessarily know what's out there in terms of you know, event monitoring, as an example, or how do they know that that's there? So is this kind of something that you help people shape? Like you go in and, and do that assessment and say, well, you know, the you work with C-suite to drive those assessments and, and give that guidance? Exactly. That's, what, that's why I set up Platinum 7, because there was a, definitely a calling in industry for that. And a lot of the time, there wasn't a, a Salesforce capability to actually do any of that. Yes, the Salesforce consultants have some good security knowledge. There's a fair few good people in Salesforce Australia who've got good security knowledge around that. But there wasn't enough out there actually doing business with customers and actually helping them with assessments and stuff. So that's the first thing I'll do for customers is actually give them a, a very short one-day assessment of where they're currently at. And then we can move on from there after I understand the risks. Sure. And we'll touch on that, the topic of communities or experience cloud now. But that seems to me like you know, one of the products that, that potentially um, opens you up to more risk in terms of, you know, obviously you, you can restrict what people can see and do, but surely that can go wrong as well in that depending on the, like who who's configured it, the amount of experience that person has, like how easy is it to get that wrong? It's relatively easy to get it wrong. Salesforce have put a few more little guardrails in place for us, which is great. The unauthenticated user, the public user, was a little bit too open, let's say, in the past. And so Salesforce have put security in place actually to lock that down much more tightly. But if you have unauthenticated access, either through sites or through a community, there's always a user behind everything in Salesforce. 
And so that user has got certain access privileges and you didn't make sure they're tight. Otherwise, that unauthenticated access could get more use than you think. And also API access by that as well. And so the public users are always quite interesting. So that's one thing, but also then the profiles and roles for the people in the community are very, very key as well to make sure that you're not sharing too much with them. And Salesforce done a fair bit more work on actually tying that down now with having permission sets that can be additive as well as taken away as well. Yeah, nice. So Platinum 7, obviously you explained how the idea came around, but going from working for a global powerhouse to having your own business, how have you found that transition and I guess early days, but enjoying it so far? Yeah, two weeks in, it's, it's great fun, actually. I do miss the corporate world in a lot of ways in that there's a legal team, there's an accountants team, there's a sales team, there's a whole bunch of teams there you can draw upon. Whereas at the moment, I'm cheap cook and bottle washer, so I do everything. And so I've actually gone out and got my accountant sorted out. I've got some legal people as a uh, lawyers as a service. They're a company called Legal Vision. Great mob, do a, a great retainer and do a process that way for me. And I'm getting my trademark done, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of, lot of admin stuff to get sorted out to start with, um, yeah. become GST registered, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's a bit of a challenge to get things worked out. But the Australian government website actually is pretty good about making it pretty easy to understand how that all works. The next thing for me to do is start hunting for some customers. So I've got most of the admin worked out now. I've got to get my products in a, a couple of sell sheets. So I can have like a one page or any particular one to share with customers. And I've got some partnerships lined up with different companies as well, which I hope to be announcing soon to get, allow me access to technology, but also let my customers have access to that as well. Yeah, nice, nice. So in terms of the plans for the business, like where where do you feel your your sweet spot is? What Where do you feel um, you're going to add most value and, uh, and solve the most challenges for customers? There's, I think, a couple of answers to that, Ben. And the first one is I plan on providing a CISO as a service capability, where for the smaller customers that like you mentioned, the you know, 100 to 500 user sort of environments, those folks probably don't have a CISO, a security person. And so I'd like to provide that to them as a service. So for quarterly assessments on your Salesforce environment, and not just the Salesforce org, but the whole environment as well. So what does it connect to? Where's the data go? Who's looking after it? Where is it secured outside of Salesforce, et cetera, et cetera. And give guidance around that as well. So a couple of days per quarter, which you could burn down on either advisory or remediation or whatever you'd like it to be. And that's, I think, one of the key products I want to get out there to the smaller businesses. For the larger ones, it'll be assessments, but also advisory and guidance, talking about, do you actually need this product to actually make you more secure? Do you need this? How should you implement that appropriately and that sort of thing? So the advisory and the assessments and the CISO of the service is what I'll be focusing on to actually give our customers the best solution that they have for Salesforce. And then after time, I look to maybe branch out into different products, but that'll be a little while off because I know Salesforce very well and that's and there's a great market out there for people who have Salesforce and who don't know that they need to have a bit more security. So that's what I'm looking on drawing down. Yeah, and I'm hoping this this podcast can bring attention to that because we we have seen and over the years I've had customers reach out looking for for people that have that expertise that can just kind of I guess hold their hand through these uh, these times and give them some guidance and advice and and I've found that there, there hasn't been that kind of security expertise in the market so I think it's really really well placed and if if anyone wants to reach out and kind of pick your brains or ask any questions or inquire about Platinum Seven and and what's to come where's the best place to find you. Our best place is either on LinkedIn or on the web. So it's www.platinum7.com.au. That's the number seven. 
or on LinkedIn, just Platinum 7. And I'm up there, ready to go. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much and good luck with uh, with what's to come. But yeah, really excited to see how the business grows. And I think it's in, in a very sweet spot right now. Thanks a lot, Ben. Appreciate your time. And thanks for listening, folks. And thanks, Ben, for having me on this great podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talent Hub Talk. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you could subscribe and also leave a short review. Um, we're keen for this podcast to reach as many people in the Salesforce ecosystem as possible. And your reviews will help us do that.